Rear up, O N Z M. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the Kyoda. welcome. <laughs> Kia ora. Um, I should say a huge congratulations um, on the um, King's birthday honours list and your recent accolade. How are you feeling about all that? Well, feeling more uh, sort of amazed by it as time goes by, really. It's sort of, um, um, I, I know it's a, it's a great honour and I do feel humbled by that, but by the fact that somebody who I don't know who uh, had decided to nominate me and, and got together with other people to put that nomination through. So that sort of seems more amazing as time goes by. It's, it's, a, it's a real delight. Um, and I'm not you, really that great with compliments, you know. <laughs> I don't. I think that's one of the things we sometimes um, suffer from, isn't it? We we can't really take a compliment <laughs> too well. <laughs> but oh, um, exactly. Have you figured out who it might have been? Who's who's put mm, those things in? No, no. I think it came from the Māori health sector, though. By the way okay. that they put together the the description, uh, which had okay. which had emphasised. Uh, that aspect as well as palliative care and hospice care. But um, if whoever put it forward is not saying. <laughs> well, I'm sure over time you'll kind of figure it out, hopefully. <laughs> um, but congratulations out the way. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to be part of the podcast. And um, people will have a bit of a bio in the intro kind of stuff that we've done but why don't you tell us um uh, a little bit about yourself and your background to start off with yes um well i was raised in napier born and raised in napier uh, which is not my tribal area so I was part of that first-generation urban-born Māori. Um, and um, my mother, who was um, a, a, a native Māori language speaker, um, I think felt quite alienated from time to time, living in, in a very uh, pahara environment, really. My father, um, it was years later that we found out that he was actually, um, that his mother was uh, um, of Māori descent. He was um, only 10 years old when his mother died. So his stepmother, uh, who, who was clearly Māori, um, we always felt that that was why we always, we always thought that that was why we were always comfortable around uh, the family. Um, so it wasn't until my grandfather's funeral, actually, that in my 20s that I found out that uh, I realised that Dad had Māori, was Māori descent. Yeah. So it was all part of that sort of generation of, on the one hand, my mother escaping um, very small Māori village 
mm-hmm. and post World War Two, and um, and my father, uh, that being raised in a uh, on a farm, and being raised with stepmother, but very, very, very comfortable around uh, Māori mm. people. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned that. Napier wasn't your tribal lands. Where was the? Where were your tribal lands? Bay of Plenty is right. is what I usually discuss. Um, it can stretch out, <laughs> depending mm. on who I'm talking to. Um, <laughs> Fano Upanui and down to uh, Lake Topol. So mm. the Fano Upanui goes up to Takaha, and that's largely where my step grandmother also comes from. Um, but there are links there through my father mm. that I don't and, know so well. And did you have any brothers and sisters? I had, was the eldest of a family of three. Um, we had, um, yes, so my father was a freezing worker. Um, so grandfather a farmer, and he was a freezing worker, so that, engendered incredible political debate at, at the dinner table when we were <laughs> staying mm. with my grandparents. Um, and my he was the oldest of five children. My mother was the youngest of 16 children, so, which was right. this huge family. So there was this um, mass of cousins that um, were part and parcel of my life as well whenever we went to stay with my mum's mother. Mm. And looking back on those roots, can you pinpoint some things that have led you to this accolade that you've got recently? (laughs) (laughs) If you had to point point to three things that gave you the the character to build that legacy. I think one of the one of the key things my father, who was the freezing worker, was also trade unionist, and he was the treasurer of the Fakatu Freezing Workers Trade Union. Mm. He always had a very strong view and belief about how you are a caretaker of other people's money, and how you need to have incredible responsibility around the the care of uh, of that money when you are in a any sort of collective or any sort of organisation or or any job for that matter. And he always firmly believed that you <laughs> got to know your maths because you've got to know whether your employer is paying you the right amount of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was always his view. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, was um, had uh, experienced um, boarding school at... Um, Māori Girls Boarding School had won a scholarship there and um, her her big thing was uh, reading and having to have gone, having had the experience of having learnt English at school and um, became an avid reader and so always emphasised reading. So there was the maths and the reading, Mm. (laughs) the all basic things. when I was in high school, um, I applied for and, and got a um, AFS exchange student scholarship to the States. 
um, and my uh, American family, host family, were Italian. Um, All right. And so it was uh, a whole nother experience of living with an Italian-American family on the edge of Lake Erie. So that was a, that in itself was an amazing. So I had play, worked my way through school, not a brilliant um, student, but participated, <laughs> could be average, and yeah. uh, you know, to such an extent that I was obviously thought to be a suitable AFS student. Hmm. <laughs> and the big challenge there was really adapting to and living with uh, another family and living in another country and um, understanding, beginning to understand the nuances of different forms of communication, really. Mm. And how old were you when you went there? Uh, I was 17. 17. And And how long did you stay for? A year. A year. Right. And so are you still in touch with that family? I am still in touch with my host sister, yes. Yeah. Uh, And I had quite often travelled back, um, often for the school reunion, (laughs) about every five years. But I've missed the last, you know, we've had COVID and et cetera. So that's been put on, all put on hold for, for some time. And did you learn some Italian with them as well? No, well, here's the strange thing. No, I didn't. But I, um, my Italian grandmother, uh, when I first met her, uh, she spoke to me in Italian. Uh, I knew a few words, and um, I understood what she was saying was by her actions, really. And when I, when we left, we'd had a cup, a cuppa, and uh, plate of food and when we left my host sister said to me I thought you didn't speak Italian I said I don't speak Italian she said mm. well you were you were talking away to Nonna and I said I was speaking in English <laughs> she said but you knew what you know you were having a conversation between the two of you yeah, yeah. and it was then that, of course I realized that a lot of that was around the beauty of uh, uh, non-verbal communication that Mm. I had actually learnt as a child with my grandmother who only spoke Māori. Well, she spoke Gaelic Irish too, but spoke Māori and and we didn't speak Māori in our household. So, but I obviously had how I communicated with my grandmother was through non-verbal communication mm. and some words. And it's such a pity that I can't see you to have these non-verbal cues. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we'll we'll kind of um, go past that. I mean, how was it then to, because although you may not have spoken, uh, you may not, so you, you did speak Maori. You didn't speak Maori, but your mother spoke Maori. My my mother was a native speaker uh, yeah. who learned English at school, and my grandmother only spoke Māori. Yeah. Um, I, uh, of course, that made me absolutely 
determined to learn Māori when I came mm. home, and particularly when I came across so many exchange students as we we would meet occasionally once every few months as a large yeah. group in the area. And, of course, so many of those students um, spoke not spoke several languages. Um, mm. And those who were from a country which where another language was spoken were in that process of learning English um, and speaking and thinking in, in English. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, so it was quite obvious that it was not going to damage my my, uh, my intellectual strength at all by mm, learning, mm. Uh, by going back and being able to speak Māori. So I, I, I took, uh, firstly, night classes um, at a local Marae because when I got back, I was halfway through the school year, halfway, mm. th um, and I started university six months later. Um, when I started university, I... I, I took up Māori language through university and trying to talk to my mother was incredibly frustrating for her because <laughs> I was like, you know, a child, a sort of two-year-old really, three-year-old yeah. maybe. Yeah. Um, and so what we worked out was that we would write to each other in, in Māori. So that, that oh, actually right. meant that I could uh, read her her letters in te reo Māori and I would write to her in my childlike Māori. Mm, mm. <laughs> and, and going to America, so not only did you have that experience of moving from um, that those roots in New Zealand uh, to go to America, but also to then be in a different cultural kind of household as well. Yes. How, how was that in terms of the changes that you experience there how, how did you manage with those um i learned to roll with the punctures i suppose mm. is the best way i can describe it it was it was a matter of of trying to understand and making sure i did understand uh from time to time yeah it's when i i realized that there was a even a different cultural view around a sense of humour and that was largely because mm. I had insulted my <laughs> host <laughs> sister by laughing hilariously at something that I thought was very funny and she felt quite insulted yeah. by it. And I realised then, you know, that that whole thing of understanding another viewpoint, another world view um, mm. was all-encompassing. Mm. And then you obviously had to come back. And so what were the kind of realisations when you came back, having had that experience abroad? Yes, there, was, there were a couple of key, key experiences. I mean, one of, the, one of the ones that really did shape my thinking about my academic, what I was going to study and also uh, what career I thought I would move into was a small inter-exchange visit for two weeks with um, living with a, a black family on the outskirts of Cleveland or mm. on, in the black suburbs of Cleveland and uh, going to predominantly black uh, high school. Mm. That was 65% black. Mm. 
of the students were Black American. And the previous year, there had been, uh, in spring, there had been uh, riots, which sort of gave new meaning to me about spring fever mm. and understanding that kind of whole seasonal change, yeah. which you don't get in New Zealand to the same extent. But um, so you had a system whereby you had to have a school photograph pinned on your ID card on your on your shirt. You um, had uh, a two bell system. So the first bell was to sort of release students from class. You'd go off down the corridors to your next class, and then uh, when you were all seated, uh, timed to be seated, then a second bell would go, and then the classroom would be locked. And then the um, armed guards, two of them, would walk down the passageways and pick up the stray students. Those Mm. who had ID cards could go to the study hall. Those that didn't were removed from the school. Mm. Uh, And that that was because of the riots in the previous year. Mm. But it really brought home to me the sort of repressive type approach that could just as easily occur in New Zealand if Mm. some of the issues that we were trying to, that we were facing, I think, in, in, in our society, if they weren't dealt with. Um, mm. And I just the thought of armed guards patrolling the schools was, was something that was quite um, abhorrent. And those experiences of then coming back to New Zealand, the segregation that you would have seen of the riots you would have seen. Um, how did that mould when you came back to New Zealand in terms of your Well, that, that shaped – my study was really around becoming a social worker. Um, I it might well smile now thinking that social work to save the world. But it, um, I felt then that that would be a way of, of uh, working with uh, people and Māori people in particular to um, ameliorate the sorts of pressures and that I could see at that time even uh, mm. emerging in our society. So that's how it shaped. And by the time I then started university, it really was that sort of whole period of time where you had you had uh, uh, women's issues, you had in the states you had Black Panther, but you had the growth in New Zealand of the Te Reo Māori, uh, the the um, um, Natamato, who were the more radical group. There was quite a lot of protest around treaty issues, etc. So it was a really turbulent 70s period of time of w- when I was emerging through um, my mm. study. And, and so that really shaped those, all, all those things shaped the way I was seeing the world. Mm. And at the same time, I had a practical desire to do something to, to work in a way that could help change. Mm. or help ameliorate or help uh, work towards changing those disparities. Yeah. 
and I think in healthcare, a lot of people have a certain view around social workers and um, forget about the advocacy and the, the kind of um, championing of rights and the other aspects of social work that people don't realise is part of the True. study. True. Um, so what was the first thing that you tackled in terms of what you saw coming back to Aotearoa? Well, after, after what I'm going to say is after my university study, I then I started, my first job was Wellington Hospital as a social, so it became a social worker in a health setting, in, mm. in the hospital setting. Um, I can say that probably just getting through university was, was, was enough. The first, my very first assignment and um, sociology assignment, which is what I had planned to major in, um, was, uh, I got this terrible grade, three out of, out of 15, I think it was. And I was so upset. I thought, right, that's it. Right. Finish. Go back home. You, Rhea, you know you're the only one who remembers that grade. <laughs> I know I'm the only one, but it's fixed in my brain. I know. <laughs> and, and, but the, the thing was that I thought, no, no, I'm here to some, I, I, I want to get through this. So I took it to the um, tutor, to the uh, lecturer, and said, look, you know, he's only written poor spelling and grammar. At the bottom of this this uh, essay, I said, I, I need to understand how I can approve that. And yeah. and here's my assignment. <laughs> and, and can you please help me just understand how I can approve it? Mm. And he, he remarked it up to five out of 15. So it was pretty bad. <laughs> 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 he was being generous. And he, um, and he, but he wrote three pages of full scope pages of comments which helped me enormously around writing assignments and getting through university. So that was, that was the, that period of getting through university, but it taught me a lesson as well around making assumptions about people's intellectual ability or, or how people understand and know the system, because it meant that I had to understand the system in order to write the kinds of assignments that could be graded and that uh, that I would mm. get a pass through. Mm. Um, yeah, in my final I mean, year, I, I, I wasn't working in my final year, but I was working in my first two years as well. So um, in my final year that my grades improved <laughs> dramatically. Mm. And it, it is also a credit to you that you had the, the wherewithal to actually ask for help. There's many, <laughs> many people would sort of well I'll just have to go and work this myself and not necessarily ask for help. So you'd already developed that insight to and 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 courage to actually go and say, Hey, <laughs> I need some help here. Yeah. It's your job to help me. <laughs> yeah. Where do you think that came from? Uh good question. Um Well, possibly, possibly. I mean, I had had come back from the states. Possibly, I was, uh, you know, I had had that whole thing of working to understand, and so 
Mm. Uh, and I had figured that the only way to do that was to ask people mm. for help to help me understand what's happening here. Or um, um, I, I think I, this is what's happening. Is this what re- is what really is happening, or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or is it something else? <laughs> yeah. It's a skill often we learn too late, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Possibly, so yeah. when you worked in the hospital, then um, what were the things that struck you most in, in terms of the system that you were working in? Yes, well, I had um, in my first two years, I had um, two surgical wards, one general medical ward, ICU, and. Uh, then in my latter years, I had paediatrics wards. So I was assigned to those those wards. And the, the complexities of the health system constantly struck me. Mm-hmm. At that time, I was, um, for a hospital social worker, you were supposed to be at least 25, and I wasn't. I was younger. <laughs> mm. uh, but I think the head of... Of social work at the time was really keen to have a Māori social worker on board and mm. uh, I was the only one in the whole of the social work department right. for Wellington Hospital. In the latter years I, real- I came to realise I was the only Māori social worker for Kapiti and for the hut as well oh, as, right. uh, as <laughs> so I would get referrals from GP clinics, from right across all that area that was quite specific around Māori uh, clients. But I also had um, clients that were uh, not Māori. So, sorry, I lost the question there. That's right. I mean, that's yeah. what I was saying. The what struck you about the health system? And yeah, so yeah. The complexity. The complexity. Also... The complexity of it. Understanding. Um, the, the various health sectors, the various elements. So um, because I was working in medical wards, there was the understanding of geriatric uh, care, what kind of uh, issues there were at that time around age residential care, mm. um, as opposed to ICU and um, the cat and in the medical wards, um, I mean, the surgical wards. Cancer was quite a, a major issue mm. in that in that area, but other other elements or issues as well. But it was also how it was divided up. Mm. Um, and while I was working in the um, the the surgical wards, it's when I got to know about Mary Potter Hospice because it was, uh, although it hadn't established itself as an independent trust at that stage it was operating they were operating the the nuns of the little company of mary were wow. operating the as a hospice um in that very early 70s time mm. and were um, there many maori patients coming into the hospital at that point because there were there, there has been uh don't i say mistrust is that the right word of you know the, the the usual healthcare system from Indigenous peoples, and I'm sure that that was the case with Māori? That, that was the case with Māori. Um, often Māori patients would 
be there because it was uh, what, what can I say the last resort kind of mm. thing. Mm. It sort of um, what we would call nowadays as late referrals into 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 care. Yeah. Um, but the um, and certainly working in paediatrics was a was a bit of an eye opener because there was a large number of Māori children at that time mm. in paediatrics. That's where that was quite high. So mm. they, my boss was quite keen to to move me into paediatrics. We had a very yeah. good paediatric social worker at the time when yeah. I first started. Um, then that she began to coach me, and, and I went into that area. Um, and you coached her, I should imagine, about Maori as well. Well, we we were actually very close friends, and as it turned out, we were we were friends before we before we started working together. And mm. um, her partner was Maori, so it wasn't a oh, matter right. of me coaching her with her with Maori. It was it really, um, yeah. She she understood well. that. Yeah, worked well. Yeah. Um. And was I, there a lot of traditional medicines being used as well? So was no. that part of the late referral? Is it just late referral because the fear of? Yeah, I think I think it was largely fear. I don't think it was around traditional uh, medicines or traditional mm -hmm. healing. That really came much later, um, and probably yeah, about because it was still taboo really the um would have been legislated against um there was an aspect of perceiving traditional healers as as kind of almost witch doctors um mm. and uh there was a real desire even from our early maori doctors to um who who were were fighting a lot of re misconceptions about health and science mm. <laughs> um, around the, the desire to sort of see some of the benefits of Western style medicine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that came that came quite a bit later in my career, and I also had some uh, work involved in my career when I was in the Ministry of Health around that yeah. and the laws when did the law change for that uh, it was very late it was um it was kind of the 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 legislation was um was it in the 1970s i think it was in the 1970s mm. um i'm i'm sorry i don't know i'd have to go back and check mm. um so but I that was that was, was obviously Sorry? So I didn't realise there was a period of time when it was legislated against in terms of obviously the perception around it. Yes, which is why mm. it became a treaty issue under the tribunal and yeah. also uh, why it's being debated at the moment around the Therapeutics Act and aligning with Australia uh, and and looking at um, herbal remedies yeah. and then being classed in that category, which yeah. people are objecting to. Um, mm. 
strangely enough, when I was working with it and we were looking at the, some of the legislation issues uh, around that, we, our team, Māori health team, clearly recommended that it not be included in any such act. There was a time uh, in an earlier period of time when when that whole e issue of therapeutics and how were um, medications going to be assessed and mm. um, and approved and distributed and paid for, etc. So mm. um, at that point in time, where that was the recommendation of our team in terms of a policy policy procedure, mm. but that all got put aside when different. Uh, regimes came into be, and um, and it's just re-emerged. And I'm so quietly thinking there's just so so many things that people don't look back on the history of mm. it. Uh, mm. And guess what? There's a pile of history sitting there that could have warned you about this. <laughs> yes, yes, and and so you had that role in paediatrics, which was really important. And and supported by your boss. Then you kind of discovered hospice. Um, how how did that role in the hospice come about, or how did the the work in the hospice come about? Was it, was it there's was an interest there, or was it um, was a particular patient that you remember? There's several patients that I I remember. Um, there was there was one gentleman who had who had been living on the streets and had had would turn up at ED every so often and everyone would go uh, no too busy bye um, he would he would be complaining about sort of the ache in his jaw and mm. eventually a young a registrar looked at his jaw and realised he had a large cancerous growth there. And so they admitted him and and um, took him through surgery, removed half of his jaw. Uh, he was he was an alcoholic mm. and uh, he had been referred over to um, Mary Potter Ward, mm -hmm. it was called then. And I had gone over to visit him. And to this day, I'll still remember him sitting up sitting up in bed and he had a a glass of beer with a straw in it and was sucking on his straw he was mm. so happy in clean pajamas and a warm comfy mm. bed uh he was so happy but you mm. know there was also that whole shift at that time around long stay short stay etc and because yeah. that was at the very early stages of hospice care um, and I was fascinated by uh, the range of different patients and the different um, activities that they had for patients. I thought it was yeah. uh, great, and I often helped uh, cancer patients that were obviously, you know, and it was a time when cancer was not easily, there wasn't survival rates for cancer. It mm. was pretty much... Um, no, it was. It must have been really, really hard work for the surgeons and the oncologists at that time, mm. because it was quite often um, 
was very rare for someone to survive uh, mm. a cancer diagnosis. Late diagnosis, late treatment. Yeah. Poor prognosis. And, and just amazing to see how that's all changed over time. Mm. And so did you move into the hospice area as a social worker in hospice? No. No? no. <laughs> I, went, I went from um, hospital social work. My husband at, at that time got a job teaching in the Pacific and uh, in the Republic of Nauru oh, and nice. um, 60 miles south of the equator. And uh, so at that stage, expat wives could be uh, nurses, teachers, or secretaries. Mm -hmm. right. And, and uh, so I became an unqualified teacher and uh, teaching um, English and art. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, that was really quite cool because um, I came up with the idea of word poems in the school and uh, so we had a fabulous time with the kids around creating word poems and then moving into haiku poems and mm -hmm. so it was a whole nother uh, aspect of um, teaching and commu and about communication really. Mm. Um, and, and did you always have an interest in art? Yes I'd had I'd had an interest in art. Um, what kind I didn't of think. Artwork I, did you do? Well, it was mostly I was I was at high school. I was training to go, well, not training. I was taking classes to to sort of specialise in art, and then I decided that that possibly wasn't a wise thing in, in terms of job opportunities, <laughs> and uh, and and took accounting instead, <laughs> and oh <my> typing, <laughs> typing, accounting, and. Wow you know but still managed to you know think about my creative side Leroy yeah yeah so it sounds very balanced Rhea <laughs> you need you need you need an accountant uh you know so and typing I mean typing is invaluable now you can't go through anything now without you know well you it, was now, then, it was amazing it was when when computers came because I was able to in fact, it's it's a disadvantage now because the keys are so soft, and sometimes I just I add letters accidentally. Uh, but you also get well, you're you're always a note keeper though. That's the other problem. Yes, that is true. <laughs> that is true. That is another problem. Yes. Mm. So how long were you so, in with Nauru for? Oh, uh, three years. Um, I right. did uh, by correspondence a paper on psychology. I was right. there from Massey University yeah. um, and started a certificate in teaching English as a second language. Mm. Um, was this psychology related to education or psychology related to health? or It was just a general undergraduate psychology right. 101. Right. Um, the, there wasn't a social work degree per se in uh, at that time. It, there was something that they called the CQSW, the Certified Qualification in Social Work and it was set by a group of uh, Council of Social Workers of some who, who set the the standards I guess and they um, they determined what subjects needed to be 
considered. So you could do psychology, sociology, or anthropology. And I had ended up majoring in anthropology mm. after my sociology experience. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> uh, and um, did you do better in anthropology? Oh, much better in anthropology. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> and of course, it was then sort of, oh, what do you mean? It's a soft subject. It's not a soft subject. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but um, uh, so those three, there's three ologies, and then New Zealand history and uh, so what something a subject they called social administration, which was really around concepts around social welfare state and mm -hmm. uh, benefit systems and um, and social policy issues really mm. yeah so I thought well I there I was on Nauru 10 miles around this little island uh, that I would get some stimulation by doing a psychology paper which mm. was once something that I hadn't included in my initial undergraduate degree mm. and then when I came back to New Zealand I uh, enrolled for a master's of social work right and where did you do that uh, at Wellington? Victoria at Victoria yes yeah and how was that how was that master's did it fulfill what you thought it was going to be or yeah it uh, um, it was interesting because there was the master's and the diploma um, but it was a um, practical degree as well. So you, in your yeah. second year, you did two two days a week. You were on a placement, or in your first year and in second year. So I did um, a placement at Social Welfare in the Hut, and working mm -hmm. with the adoption team, and um, which was really interesting concepts around adoption then the birth mother, birth parents, birth mother, adopted parents, uh, adoptee. And it was in the time the, the leader of that particular team was very influential in changing some of the adoption legislation. So mm -hmm. I could see not only was I working with people who were coming to terms with the adoption issues, um, but also looking at how you go about changing something um, mm. on a bigger scale, like changing the legislation. Yeah. In um, the second year, I uh, was uh, working with Department of Māori Affairs, and and place my placement was with uh, uh, infant. Uh, I say infant growing first mm. year, first year of. So, um, which had started up with just uh, three funding for three or four kohangaru, and um, suddenly, <laughs> overnight, in six months, they were swamped with you know the the, the demand uh, for funding for and people. Māori communities weren't waiting for the funding. They just said, oh, well, we'll just start it anyway. Um, so it was quite and, haphazard at that stage, but it was mm. just the passion with which that concept uh, was about grew enormously. And can you tell us a bit about Kohangarua? Kohangarua? Right? Koha yeah, almost. <laughs> 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 Ko Kohangarua is 
um, uh, so it's preschool, pre, it, it, it literally translates as language nest, it's preschool, and so the children are spoken to in Māori and encouraged to speak in Māori, right. and they learn waiata in Māori, and they learn their karakia, and they yeah. learn, um, they have, you know, sleep time, feeding time, etc. but they learn all about that in te reo Māori. And that was uh, the beginning, eventually, the... Um, um, it, it then moved into uh, kura, kaupapa Māori. So that was the sort of primary school going into high school. And then mm-hmm. you had eventually the wānanga develop. So you had this kind of scale of education started really from Kohangaroo. So Kohangaroo is very active still today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a couple of variations on that, on, on that um, thing, aspect. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so my grandson had started on uh, what was called Te Punarua, which is a, just a, a, a same sort of idea as Punarua, as Kohangarua. Um, what, so, what I have – sorry, go on. I was just going to say, so he's now in, in uh, primary school and in an immersion, Māori mm. immersion class. And what, what I have noticed in the last, I think it was the last five or six years, that there's a lot more te reo being spoken. Yes. Um, certainly, you know, when when I've been at meetings, um, you know, te reo or with, you know, people coming across who I know are from the UK, <laughs> they will be <laughs> speaking some te reo now, which, which they wouldn't have done um, years and years ago. That True, it is. It is quite astounding um, in some respects. I can recall in, you know, when um, Nader Glavish uh, was fired from, it was then at the time of the um, the old telephone system where you, you mm. put a plug in the system and she would <clears throat> answer these calls and requests for toll calls and saying kia ora, and she got fired for saying kia ora. Well, that mm. that just generated such an uproar, uproar um, mm. at that time. It was the New Zealand Post Office, I guess, who um, who managed the telephone system and the then telephone system. And that would have been in the, was it in the 70s? Mm. Possibly early 80s. I think in the 70s. And um, and then so we just everyone every time you answer the telephone you said kia ora and you were waiting for the for the new the news started saying kia ora New Zealand <laughs> and yeah. off that would go. Um, so so you've, what you've had is a whole development since then. Yeah, yeah, and making sure the language continues um, with all those all those different levels of schooling that comes through, but then also now integrating it with everyone else in the population so that it now becomes much more of a national language in some respects. Yes. I mean, the interesting thing is it is officially a national language, but mm. the um, the Natamator group who were considered to be so radical in the 70s were really asking for just a half an hour of Māori a week 
mm. uh, in schools, and that was considered to be really radical. So that's the kind of shift Half an hour that you've week. had. Wow. Yeah. And last time we met was at the Hospice New Zealand conference in Christchurch. Mm. Um, and how have you think? How do you think things have moved on in terms of um, Maori and palliative care or Maori and healthcare um, from those days when you were in Wellington Hospital and came back from Nauru? <laughs> How many changes have you seen? How much has things progressed? Uh, changes have done? occurred all the way through. Mm. Um, and, uh, and if you if you look at the here and now, the fact that there is an actual agency of Māori Health, the mm. Akafai order is, is still quite amazing. Um, mm. In um, terms of service, I think service access, uh, when I started at Mary Potter, there was a, a, well, there was a real question mark about the data anyway, um, but there was, a, it was uh, considered to be about 3% of the, of the client group of patients enrolled or um, not enrolled, but patients who were part of the hospice service. Were about three percent were Maori, mm. um, and there was certainly still a view that distrust that we touched on earlier, which mm -hmm. didn't really go into any depth. But that I had noticed that that distrust had was still there. Mm. Um, it's the same sort of distrust that my mother and grandmother had around participating and going to hospital, fear of going to hospital. Uh, mm. Fear of of the health services, etc. Mm. Um, but uh, in in the decade that I was really with Mary Potter Hospice, that did change, and and there was it was a concerted effort on our part, you know, setting up our um, support groups to working in and discussing things in the community, um, changing so that the word-of-mouth experience of hospice mm. was being spread. And mm. so w we think now that the access is really good. What we're not sure about throughout the country, what we're mm. not sure about is really the quality of service, whether yeah. that's matching and the expectations. Yeah. So that's the area that, that is, is also being worked on through Modi Mate. So mm. my role, excuse me, cough okay. clear my throat um, the, the, so the part of my role uh, with Hospice New Zealand is to chair the Te Rōputaki Māori which is the Māori uh, leadership group we're calling mm -hmm. it it's a, it is an advisory group but it's also a leadership group and that uh, so Apart from the COVID years, we had been building up an annual meeting with uh, the Māori staff of hospices around the country and, and pulling them together for a day, two days at Amarai at and looking at what some of the key issues might be that mm -hmm. they needed to have information on. So mm -hmm. we're about ready to go for, for virtual hui, 
we're hoping, uh, as a lead up to the face-to-face hui, which uh, will, um, we're hoping, can still go ahead in November. Mm. And when you became chief executive of Mary Potter in, was it 2017? Uh, um, t- or retired. No, no. Retired that's when I retired, Sorry. 2017. When, when, did you, when were you chief executive then? From uh, 2006. 2006. So. Oh, no, um, 2000 must have been. Uh, 11, I was there 11 years. Is that right? Yeah. That's yes, right. it is right. Um, <laughs> Despite my accounting, to, accounting <laughs> qualifications. <laughs> so were you, I mean, were there many other Maori um, chief executives uh, in palliative care or in healthcare. No. I mean, <laughs> no pioneer then. Uh, well, that's not how I presented myself as a pioneer. But yes, I. It was right at the very end. I think of my time at Mary Potter. We had uh, a Māori, another Māori chief executive, and I think we've now got two in the mm. country. I wasn't the first. But I certainly was the only at that time. At that time. Um, so uh, it was really gentle, gentle to yeah. to yeah. to bring about a Māori perspective and view. And interestingly, it was it was largely coming so strongly from the allied health part of of palliative care. Um, yeah. And uh, the desire there to make our services more um, available to Māori or more to be able to encourage different sorts of ways of working with Māori. Mm. And so important to build that leadership group, like you say, continuing on making sure that that is uh, integrated in what we do. And it, I mean, that kind of Māori view, uh, is it? Um, it's just that holistic view from a much broader perspective as well but it's it a holistic view about about health it is very much so um but you know when i um because in coming to hospice i'd been in the ministry of health for uh nine years as mm. Deputy Director General Māori Health, so in that whole space of, of overview of Māori initiatives and Māori policy and Māori health workforce and Māori providers and mm. Māori health issues. Uh, and how did you get into that job? <laughs> well, well, when I came back from Nauru, I then I went off and did, did an MBA uh, right. and then went into the public service and moved into various uh, third-level management jobs Mm. in the public service and uh, eventually second-level management jobs in the public service, um, which were both targeting policy and programs, but um, Mm -hmm. mainstream or sector groups. So youth affairs, women's affairs, uh, health, Māori affairs. I worked across those kinds of uh, agencies and organisations mm. um, and and then 
uh, applied for and got the job as DDG, Māori Health, mm. and the Ministry of Health. So the, leaving there to go to the hospice uh, and take the CE's hospice job, it was a real, um, it was great that hospice took me on as a CE. Mm. Um, it, my experience as a CE, of, as, a, as a manager of a Māori team, who in general were much smaller as a unit. So mm. we had 12, 15, 12 to 15 staff as opposed to my colleagues who may have been um, 30, 50, 120, mm. <laughs> 200 mm. staff. So yeah. it, I was not quite seen as having a broad enough span of uh, to be considered as a CE for uh, for a... DHB, for example, or yeah. Um, yeah. a wider, bigger group. So, um, so the so the social worker in paediatrics who had that vision of not only looking after patients and families, but also that bigger policy and how to how to get things moving on a different scale. That kind of wet your appetite for that kind of approach to changing policy and making a bigger change in a bigger way. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And then very much so. your experience in the ministry just honed those skills a little bit more so that. Well, it, it honed my knowledge of health, uh, the health system, health sector, the different components and parts of the health system. Mm -hmm. Um and the complexities of that health system. Mm. But um, creating a space for uh, Māori health was yeah. was really the role. Yeah, uh, creating a space us. and then trying to integrate it. Yes. Going forward. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, Create the space and then integrate. Get your foot in the door and then push right. the door wide the door open. <laughs> so, so where are we up to with that? How, how is that all going? Uh, well, having retired, uh, you know, and, and, and I've, I've been so busy as a retired person. <laughs> got to uh, say. I don't know many retired people who aren't busy. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I know. All these people that I know and you know who've retired, they're still doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> they're still doing stuff. I mean, what you do retire from is is the the, the getting up routinely every day and in terms of the job or the shift mm. that job and, and the hours that you work. Um, so uh, how's that space? That space, um, that space has, that space is, is a really interesting, it's really interesting now because it's been accelerated by the creation of the Māori Health Agency. Mm -hmm. uh, the um, so I'm currently on the um, chair the uh, we're now calling this group the Māori Partnership Group of uh, Health Quality Safety Commission. Uh, so um, and I've been working on that for four years. So we're we're really looking at those issues about safety and quality that may be mm. impacting on Māori uh, and putting our advice and working around the work programs of that. Mm -hmm. We're really interested in the development of the Iwi Māori Partnership Boards. 
and how that will or will not, how that might um, begin to add a different sort of pressure on the, um, or a different positive view around um, family whānau voice, uh, mm -hmm. consumer voice, and how that actually then feeds back into um, the this, this system. But the system is so big and huge. Mm. Um, mm. When you realise that it's, uh, you know, when they combined all the DHBs and 90,000 staff across the country, billions of dollars in terms of mm. uh, the dollars. Um, that was just going to happen, was it? Last time we met, that was when the district health boards were going to be... Disestablished. Disestablished, yeah. Mm. Um, and they are now disestablished. Uh, and there is, I don't want to dump on them, but there is this uh, sense of a chaos. Um, mm. And it's the kind of chaos you get from trying to uh, bring about change mm. um, and bring about change in a very large or um, complex system is mm. even more difficult. I was in the Ministry of Health at the time the DHBs were created, so I know how hard it is bringing about that change. And I'd never worked so hard mm. in all my life, I've got to say. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. because the whole aim, certainly of uh, the Minister and Dame Karen Patassi at that time, was to ensure that the services kept going, kept going, without major disruption, while the upper layers and policy and legislation changed. Uh, mm. and the decision making changed and and I, I think it is disappointing that the uh, well the one thing that really wasn't um, really worked on at that time was some the kind of national overview type um, organization so that to have something that whereby DHBs were needing to to look at how they were operating or looking at models of service or looking at how, where we needed to spend dollars. Mm. Um, that was largely missing. And they did create instead four technical advisory groups. So there was a different, they went back to the four regions, I guess, idea. But having seen, um, at that point, I'd been uh, working in the ministry for several years and had seen the uh, the DHB, the creation of the Health Funding Authority and its demise, um, the then creation of the district health boards. So that I'm very, very aware of how much angst that kind of change can, t can create. Mm. And I would have loved to have been involved in some of the ways of saying you mm, change management needs to be done in different sorts of ways. Yeah, <laughs> but you know that well, I didn't have I didn't have that role. <laughs> yes, I mean it's um a huge time for change in many ways, isn't it, from a healthcare perspective? And I think that just talking to you and hearing your experiences of having to advocate for change for vulnerable vulnerable people um not only maori patients but also other vulnerable populations Indeed. that that we serve 
um, there's a there's a a nuanced ways a nuanced way of making those changes. And I think from talking to you, the skills that you've managed to accumulate over the years have set you up in good stead to thoroughly deserve the <laughs> king's birthday honor that you got. What now? What now for you? Uh, well, what would you leave as a message, uh, a story that we should keep close to our hearts in terms of um, maybe change management into the future? What What do you think we should uh, think about? Well, I, I, in how I come back done. to that that issue of communication um, at the mm. at the heart of good change management is is communication at the heart of good palliative care is communication with your colleagues, with your team, your, with uh, patients, with whānau. And there are mm. different skill sets uh, with different groups. So we, the difference between talking to one person as opposed to talking to several who may, may be under stress, you know, that requires a different... And it's not... Well, I don't think it's hard, but it just needs, um, it does need training. People do need training or practice uh, and creating a safe environment for themselves and in turn creating a safe cultural space for a, cult a safe cultural service mm. for health. I'm, I'm also um, interested in the wider disparities um, or the wider indicators of, of um, influence on, on health. So the issues around housing, income, um, and how, how we make a fairer society is just as important to me um, as providing good quality healthcare services that are culturally safe for mm. not just Māori, but as you say, for... Uh, from for many groups who don't aren't quite seen to fit into the into the space. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So I that's mean, that's think... where that's where I'd go. I, and one of the things that I'm really interested in now is is also um, building up my networks and the um, amongst my tribal trusts, and I'm looking at sort of creating a place where my grandchildren will come to their tribal homeland. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I've bought a little cottage in, in Rotorua and I'm just about finished doing it up. Um, but I'll still operate in Wellington from time to time. But that um, is an area where the tribal trusts are really looking at the protection of the land, the ongoing issues around land and economic development, housing and social services that sort of fit in with health services. Hmm. Rhea, it's been such a great conversation to um, just hear about your experiences and how you've adapted and what you've learned and the wisdom that you've brought to the conversation. I mean, I wondered whether we'd actually be talking more about, you know, Maori health and a little bit more into the, to uh, how we can learn so much from um Maori from a palliative care end of life perspective, we never got to that, and um, maybe we just need to set up another another conversation for that. But um, you're right, communication is such a huge part of what we do, and it is 
odd that we don't have enough or do we don't have um, more communication skills training for people uh, involved in healthcare and then the other thing i've kind of just reflected on is that that role of social work where you see people as they bounce into on admission and admission and you you get to see the context change um, as their mm-hmm. as their illness changes yeah. and how they adapt and how they use the resources that they have um, to their advantage and how we how social workers support that on multiple admissions and probably are one of the key people in the team that really recognize um, those networks that people need to keep them safe and keep them going yeah. as they as they leave uh, our services in the in an inpatient setting so um, it's a it's a really important role I think that doesn't really get the airtime um, so I'm, I'm pleased that we could, we could explore that today order Thank you, Leora. You you can't see me, but I've been quietly nodding my head. <laughs> <laughs> so kia ora. Thank you. Kia ora. It's uh, lovely, lovely to talk to you. And as again, uh, yet again, sorry, uh, congratulations on the on the honours. And um, I know you'll wear it proudly, but you're you're so humble that I know that you won't speak very much about it. But People should be on their knees and <laughs> <laughs> bowing to you in the meeting. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. We will um, talk soon. Thanks very much. Okay. Um, take care.